0: Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker Whitelaw, and here is my co host, Claire Biddles. Hello. So, this week we are discussing Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, one of the biggest films of the year, based on the non fiction book. American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, this ambitious biopic explores the career of theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, covering his academic origins, his work developing the atomic bomb during World War II, and a series of security hearings in the 1950s when the US government questioned his potential ties to communism. So just before we get started, um, if you didn't hear in the previous episode, this is a note for Patreon people. As always, thank you so much for supporting the show. We love that you are continuing to follow us on Patreon. Morgan and I are still doing new episodes there about once a month and we do have a Q&A coming up, but also there was some kind of site-wide glitch on Patreon that meant that some people, their payments got rejected or they got unsubscribed. So if you think that you didn't have Patreon at the beginning of August... Go check that out and uh, resubscribe if uh, you've been unsubscribed and you want to still be with us. So uh, (laughs) that's all. Um, Claire,
1: I believe you loved this film. I loved this. I believe that you were lukewarm on this film. Yeah, I was like, it's fine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, before I went to see it, so I'm already, as I know you are, already um, something of a Nolan enthusiast. And before I saw the film, I saw a tweet that said... Some people are complaining about the amount of security hearings in Oppenheimer. That's all I need to hear. <laughs> There'll never be enough security hearings. And I was like, yes! I know I'm going to love this shit because I love it when guys are in a room talking about things I don't really understand. I just fucking love that. I went to see it with my friend Nicola, who hated it. <laughs> um, but we, we had a really good discussion on the bus home and... The whole way through, I was like, I understand why you would dislike this, but this is just so <laughs> my shit. <laughs> so yeah, very excited to talk about
0: it. I have many thoughts. I think we both have many, many thoughts. I think with this, I didn't have my brain calibrated correctly because there's this situation with Christopher Nolan where he is our kind of number one mainstream prestige director. He is the one... Serious filmmaker of his generation that, like, everyone has heard of and young people are really into, which is why this film is such a success. And I fully support that. And I find him very likeable, kind of as a public figure. But I kind of forgot going into this that he's pretty corny. Yeah, he's so <laughs> he's corny. Because, so like, the way people were talking about this is like, I was shaken to my core. And I was watching it and I was like, I am uh, not shaken to my core, uh, <laughs> which we will go into more. But it's like, it is basically like a really cheesy biopic I know that's not what he's describing it as or marketing it as he is like this is a harsh moral lesson about American militarism but it's like it's inspired by Amadeus and it's hitting all those (laughs) classic biopic
1: beats there is a very funny sex scene moment oh my god it is like a film from 1993 but for me complimentary yeah it's so old-fashioned and there were so many parts we will get into it but yeah I was just like this guy is a corny bastard. But in a way that I completely But he's
0: love. tricked everyone because it's like, it's got every prestige actor, he's got every actor oh in the world, like a really, every a really wide guy. range of white men, like a diverse array of white men if you can think Generally. of such a thing. An incredible filmmaking like on a technical perspective, so like you can talk about all that stuff and then it's like, well, we've just forgotten that he's corny as hell, but before getting into <laughs> that, I think we're going to talk about other Nolan projects throughout this. Yeah. This is like his most talky film by far. He mostly does... Mm-hmm. Kind of action and genre cinema apart from this. But the origin story of this, in itself, this is a huge achievement and victory for Christopher Nolan as the avatar of watching movies in the cinemas. It's like him and Tom Cruise (laughs) are the two headed monster of actually going to the movies. And he has truly won because before this, he had a very long running relationship with Warner Brothers where he was producing. Colossal blockbusters for Warner Brothers. And then Warner Brothers, like many other studios, started going in the direction of releasing stuff online simultaneously to the cinema. So, like, that's happened with several big blockbusters. It started the pandemic with stuff like Wonder Woman 2, which just vanished without trace. But Nolan was like, I'm not doing this. I make films for the cinema. Also, without films like this coming out in theatres, the entire cinema industry will just collapse financially. So he basically shopped this film around to every major Hollywood studio. And in the end, Universal was like, we will agree to your demands, which is a $100 million budget, a $100 million marketing budget, and a three to four month release window where there's no digital release. So it's just in cinemas for three to four months, which is how things were always done in the old days. But as soon as something comes out in digital, it like, kills off all the kind of cinema tickets which is what's happening with barbie absurdly they're releasing barbie like next week on digital which is like what what? yeah it's ridiculous like at the beginning of september yeah
1: it's like they're so stupid that is idiotic because i did actually wonder because it's going off this is very like local news but it's going off at the cinema in Glasgow that me and Gav go to today, and I thought, why aren't they? Why
0: the hell are people they are still dressing up to see? Yeah, this yeah, film. yeah. Because like Oppenheimer is fucking selling out, um, selling out IMAXs, but like this is wild. Yeah. Because I remember when this film was first kind of being announced, I remember talking to my friends and everyone was like, well, we fully support Christopher Nolan and his endeavors. And it's really cool that he's doing this really dense, inaccessible film, but they are going to fucking lose (laughs) money hand over fist. And as it turns out, it's like his most financially productive film aside from the Batman franchise. So Godspeed to Chris. Uh, (laughs) but, (laughs) But outside of that inside baseball
1: situation, what do you want to talk about first in terms of this film? Maybe first, actually, we can talk about the kind of similarities and differences with great man biopics. Because until you sent me the notes for this, I had no idea that it was literally inspired by the uh, pairing in Amadeus. Yeah, because I was thinking of Amadeus
0: and when I saw it too, I was like, (laughs) oh my God.
1: (laughs) Right. And... When I saw it, I was like, well, 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 of course. Like, absolutely, of course. I don't know. It's really interesting for me as well that it's two-thirds a Great Man biopic and one-third a Cold War political thriller, which I just came out of it being like, I want Christopher Nolan to do a full Cold War thriller. If anything, I could have done with more scenes where people were getting interrogated about their communist ties. (laughs) I cannot get enough of that shit. And I thought there is a vi- I liked the version that I saw obviously really into the film but there's another version of this film that I would have loved to have seen that doesn't show anything about the Manhattan Project and starts after the atomic bomb and just talks about that stuff and sort of tells a story through that I think that is also another way that you could do it but um yeah going back to the kind of traditional biopic thing I always think that Christopher Nolan is a secret art film director. I think I'm always going on about uh, how Dunkirk is secretly an art film.
0: I mean, I think Dunkirk is probably his best movie. I think, it's, yeah. I think it's just an incredible
1: accomplishment. It's incredible. But this is so, like you're saying, it's so different really to what it usually does because it's so old-fashioned, corny, biopic stuff hits all the meeting the wife like all the the bits where he's like a scientist drawing on the board and and exposition yeah there's like one student one week and then there's like five and then there's 20 and when you said amadeus i was like right of course it's that but one of the films that i was like this is like the good version of a beautiful mind
0: i've not seen it but i know what you mean
1: Oh God, I had to rewatch it for like a project that I was doing a few years ago. That kind of thing where it's like very collegiate and, you know, a guy who's brilliant, but like, does he really exist in this world and can his ideas really be in the real world and stuff? So it kind of reminded me of that kind of thing. But a good corny version in a way that I can barely describe, like there are some parts... There was one bit where he is telling his life story to his wife and then it cuts to him telling his life story to his wife while they're both riding horses. And it was just so stupid (laughs) and unlikely. But I was just eating it (laughs) off. I've no idea why.
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the whole thing you were saying about great man biopics, which are a scourge on the cinema industry it's like there's there's so many of these that come out each year and it's always kind of funny to look at there's always like a few that just vanish without trace and a few that are just colossal hits obviously there's stuff like Elvis and the appalling Freddie Mercury movie that are about celebrities but also we've had a bunch recently where it's sort of the Benedict Cumberbatch and Benedict Cumberbatch wannabes. Like Nicholas Holt did at least one that was one of the ones (laughs) that vanished, but it's like, it's some sort of British public figure or troubled intellectual. And this is absolutely in that vein, but it's very much classed up and with a far bigger cast. So it's kind of interesting to make that comparison because in some ways the, the corny elements are extremely familiar. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so popular is because like it is actually far more accessible than it sounds when we're all joking Mm -hmm. about it being a three hour drama because it's like Mm -hmm. everyone is aware of these genre beats and then all of the stuff that's like added on like all of the moral quandaries and the stuff about the Cold War that people aren't familiar with it just like exercises people's brains but not in a way that's like this is really hard for people to be doing if you get what I mean. I realize that sounds really Mm -hmm. condescending but that is like the way you make a popular smart movie for adults. But the thing is that it's sort of like three quarters of it is just this sort of classic biopic format, but classed up. And then the other quarter is far more critical, which is something I really do respect about the movie. It obviously is far more negative toward the US military industrial complex than the vast mm-hmm. majority of mainstream World War II movies. And obviously it's a film about the bombs. So like there is no real sense of victory. So you have to have a mm-hmm. film that like, the structure of it is leading up to this point where there is, what feels like a victory because it's the biggest moment of tension. Like there's two moments of tension, which is sort of the point where the bomb explodes and then the point where, you know, the end of the hearings at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And those do fit into the emotional structure that Christopher Nolan is very good at making in blockbusters, but the emotions Mm -hmm. associated with them are just really negative. So it's more like a psychological thriller where you're enjoying having an unpleasant time yeah 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 I read a few articles kind of when I was researching this point and there was one there was one that I think I'm going to quote a few times which was an extremely aggressively negative review I don't (laughs) I don't fully agree with this because like there was a bunch of elements of this film that I appreciated and I wasn't watching the film being like this fucking sucks but that is definitely the opinion of Richard Brody writing in the New Yorker I believe he is a Barbie (laughs) stan so he had like a great Barbenheimer month where he was like I loved Barbie and I think Oppenheimer is pure trash he described it as a movie-length Wikipedia article and then compared it to TV <laughs> films. He made some interesting points about like the way that this film, even though the film itself is very clear about it being a, a negative story and the marketing is very much like this is grappling with Oppenheimer's morality. But Richard Brody is kind of digging into the fact that this film does what every other great man biopic does, which is really smooth down all of Oppenheimer's darker and weirder edges to fit him yeah. into a more accessible format. So let me just see if I can find this quote. The film is so intent on making Oppenheimer an icon of conflicted conscience that it pays little attention to his character overall. He was a renowned aesthete with a bearing so charismatic that his students would try to emulate it, but we get little more than a couple of artsy name drops to suggest that he has any cultural life at all. The overweening ambition that Groves that um, this character saw in Oppenheimer is never in evidence nor is there any mention of his chilling readiness to go with a plan that was never put into action, to poison German food supplies with radioactive strontium. There is no glimpse of the ailing Oppenheimer who was suffering from tuberculosis even while running Los Alamos. It doesn't help that Murphy portrays Oppenheimer as like and haunted, a cipher, a black hole of experience who bears his burdens blankly as he is buffeted by his circumstances but gives off no energy of his own. And elsewhere in this article, he kind of points out that the film basically doesn't mention a lot of the darker elements of Oppenheimer's personality that are mentioned in this big, long biography that the the film is based on. So, like, the film begins with this quite famous moment in his life, which is one of the very few things I knew about his life, which is when he tried to poison one of his teachers with a arsenic apple at school. And the film shows this and then, like, doesn't examine it and doesn't show the aftermath when, in reality, Mm -hmm. he, you know, he was, like, nearly kicked out. He was sent to therapy. There's other moments in his life when he was very violent and volatile. Also, his peers found him really disturbing. There was one point where he was, like, like behaving so erratically on a European tour with his physics class that the students petitioned to have him silenced. So it's like, <laughs> Holy he shit. was like he was so much weirder and yeah, creepier yeah. than the film. But the film is like, it's as with any kind of historical drama, the audience kind of has to examine what does historical accuracy mean here and what is mm-hmm. the narrative that the storyteller is trying to put forward. So like Christopher Nolan is just obsessed with this idea of, of Oppenheimer being this person who has done something that is morally repulsive and he has completely changed the world. So he is genuinely a great man in the sense that he has done something which has a huge impact on history. But at the same time, Nolan is like, well, he was so kind of lacking in political backbone that he was never able to voice what his actual opinion was and what he's done. Mm -hmm. So the whole film is really internalizing all of those moral conflicts, which allows the Mm -hmm. audience to interpret what they think. Yeah. But it also maybe is not even an accurate reflection of what oppenheimer behaved like in his own life
1: yeah it's definitely more of like a cipher which i think it's i think that's why it's interesting to think of it as in this lineage of great man biopics because it is quite contradictory in that way and if it's like a kind of decent one there's a focus on the kind of charisma of the person or the particularities of the person and what made this person great and it's like his actions are great rather than like him in himself, because we don't really know about him and himself, so it's like, it is interesting that it follows this structure, but you don't come away knowing much about him. (laughs) One of the things that I think is quite funny is how Oppenheimer was, like, known as a massive shagger, and, like, obviously, in the film, he, like, has his wife, and he has this kind of, like, on-off thing with Florence Pugh, which we should mention now, the sex scene in which... (laughs) I was like, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) He he is fully inside Florence Pugh and she gets him to say the I am become Death Destroyer of Worlds bit. And I was just like, this? Is this real? It's bold. (laughs) It's what happens when you have full editorial
0: control. Yeah. And uh, God love him. I mean, it was fucking ridiculous. It also got a lot of pushback among more conservative Hindu viewers in India because this is obviously a quotation from a Hindu text in the middle of a huge fucking scene (laughs) and uh, so it's like disrespectful in several ways but like you know you gotta do what you gotta do as a storyteller apparently (laughs) yeah it was very funny that there was all this kind of like buzz beforehand about how there's like nudity and stuff and we don't need to go into sort of modern purity culture and what have you but it's like there were two sex scenes in this. They were both about 30 seconds long and they were both <laughs> iconically silly. And I think that's very appropriate yeah. for Christopher Nolan, who
1: is just not his area.
0: filmmaker, no. He's not a sexy filmmaker. One thing I would like to know is that there is a lot of kind of stereotyping of Christopher Nolan. A lot of people kind of describe him as a very cold and chilly filmmaker. And obviously this is completely absurd misnomer. It's not remotely accurate, but I think I know precisely why that is. And it's because he is visually a very neat and organized filmmaker. So people are looking at movies where there is a lot of very carefully arranged architecture and a gray color palette and very precise editing and the their brain is like this is chilly it's but it's like all of his movies are histrionic melodramas yeah <laughs> like inception is like people like you know jumping off buildings and weeping into right. their wives laps and all this stuff he did a literal victorian melodrama with the prestige which is about victorian magicians the
1: prestige. His,
0: his movies are very intensely emotional it's just that the emotions at play are sometimes a bit ridiculous especially when they involve women which as we know are not his forte, which is why Dunkirk is his best movie. It's the one that has no women. Exactly.
1: I was watching this and I was like, I mean, again, I can't be asked with the whole like current discourse about women in films and boring ways of assessing whether something is feminist or not. I just don't come to Christopher Nolan films for women. I just wish that he would not write them in his films. I don't need to see a wife in a cardigan every like five scenes.
0: I mean, it, it was so funny that, so Emily Blunt plays the wife. And um, as I said, I'm not familiar with Oppenheimer's life story, but I am told that the biography makes it quite clear that this woman was just a huge bitch, which she is in the film. She is <laughs> She's like, they have a not particularly happy marriage and she is a very minor character. And it's kind of, her role is split between her being this very sort of dull secondary character wife in a biopic role and then she has this fantastic single scene blowout moment near the end during one of the interrogations but like I do think it's kind of it's a bit difficult if you're trying to like make a movie where it's like your female lead is just this like really unappealing person and you're a writer who already is kind of struggling to just make a woman seem like a person (laughs)
1: yeah 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 and Florence Pugh's character in her very nature she's also quite peripheral and comes in and out of his life and is just kind of like somebody that he's shagging so it's like she doesn't need to be anymore but again it's like not it doesn't do him any favors really when the screen was full of guys talking that's what I wanted I was just like just this but you're right that's why Dunkirk is his best film it's just just every twink in existence
0: so among this very wide range of guys do you have some
1: standout faves I do have some fave, guys. Thank you for uh, thank you for asking. And first of all, I have to speak in my capacity as a representative of Dane DeHaan Nation. <laughs> the Dane DeFans, if you will. This is testament to how many guys there are in Oppenheimer that I didn't know that Dane DeHaan was in it until about three weeks before it was released. And I am... Uh, Dane De San somebody sent me a still being like oh you know how there was just like (laughs) endless fucking tweets of like so and so is being added to Oppenheimer usually on Wikipedia you can see the entire
0: cast without having to scroll but you have to scroll through like three laptop screens worth of names And all of these actors have Wikipedia pages. I mean, toward the
1: end, they introduce President Truman and it's fucking Gary Oldman and it's like a jump scare. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know Gary Oldman was going to be in it either. Just so many guys, character actors who've been in, like, something you saw, like, six years ago. Dane DeHaan, who is incredible, as always, plays uh, Kenneth Nichols, a US Army officer and civil engineer who worked in the Manhattan Project. And Dane DeHaan is... I think, one of his generation's greatest. But the problem is that he has wild choices. And also he looked like a 14-year-old until the age of 35. Right. He's kind of got a weird in-between face. He's got a wife and kids and he did TV for a long time because he wanted to be like with his kids and it was kind of easier. So... I feel like what we're going to have is a Dane DeHaan renaissance where he's going to become the Philip Seymour Hoffman of his generation. Very when he's, bold. It's bold, but I'm saying it. When he's like sort of 50-ish and he's just going to be like the go-to sporting actor. But he's great in this. Gav saw this film before me and afterwards I texted her being like, is Dane DeHaan in it for more <laughs> or less than seven minutes? <laughs> His role is more significant and he is just so good at playing a kind of slimy, I think because of his kind of twink death face. I would describe him as having a vaguely newt-like appearance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's got like the kind of children of the corn eyes yeah. and it really lends itself to that. He's also very good at doing that kind of like slightly darkly sexy creepy kind of thing that i just love he's incredibly good he's kind of present at the manhattan project being suspicious and then afterwards we kind of find out that he has more of a kind of more of a role some of my other favorite guys i think it's been a lot of people's favourite guy, David Crumholtz. My fave, loved him. What did you like about David Crumholtz? who I just thought it's the guy from 10 Things I Hate About You? <laughs> he
0: has had a fantastic career as a sort of hey, it's that guy. And he is financially <laughs> solvent because he was in a CBS crime drama for like five to 10 years. So he's solid. Good on him. Yeah. So he is a character who does not really have much dramatic resonance he is one of the pals of Oppenheimer and kind of shows up like Jiminy Cricket to be like I'm not going to help you with the bomb but I'm a jovial pal and (laughs) I just think this was a tremendous performance because you have so many guys in this and you have a lot of guys who are either very much intentionally background figures and are just there to kind of deliver a small line of dialogue about you know physics or people who have big (laughs) dramatic roles like Matt Damon or Robert Downey Jr or Casey Affleck and mm-hmm. with David Crumholtz, he just exudes likability and watchability to such a degree. <laughs> it's not star power because he's not a star, but it is a wonderful quality in a character actor to show mm-hmm. up, be just
1: magnetically delightful and then leave and you're like, we're done with him. Yeah. You know what? That was enough. That was plenty. <laughs> I got a similar vibe from Josh Hartnett who, again, is just, like, a kind of, like, likeable pal. Yeah. And and has a bit of a flirty kind of vibe with Oppenheimer, who he keeps calling Oppie, which I just love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's got, like, a similar thing where, like, whenever, you know, he'll be off screen for, like, an hour and then he'll come back and he'll be like, there he is. Great.
0: What I find so funny is, like, he is the one sort of conservative scientist because one of the key things here, obviously, is um a lot of the people Oppenheimer is associating with are leftist or communists. And this mm-hmm. means that they are under investigation continuously and that accelerates up to the point where he is being fully investigated during the Red Scare in the 50s. And Josh Hartnett's character is one of his colleagues who doesn't work directly on the bomb in New Mexico, but um, he was a guy named Ernest Lawrence. And I just find it very funny that like the styling on this is... They gave him some little highlights. He's very handsome. The actual guy in real life is just like a normal-looking man with glasses. But they were like, "This is going to be the one hottie in the film." It's going to
1: be teen heartthrob. Yeah, yeah. And it's
0: also in every single Christopher Nolan film, there has to be one person who looks like Christopher Nolan, and that's him. Because in the last one, it was it was Robert Pattinson. It's Robert Pattinson. And then you know, and then obviously Inception, in his greatest uh, self-insert role, it's just Leonardo DiCaprio with the same haircut and fashion sense as Chris from Nolan but um, in this one it's a lot more toned down but he did feel the need to slightly highlight Hartnett's hair to let all the stands know (laughs) that there is still a Chris in there
1: (laughs) Don't worry, Chris is present. Yeah,
0: and a lot of people got to be like, oh my God, Josh Hartnett's still here and he's still hot and it's like, look. Well, these
1: people didn't watch Penny Exactly, Dreadful. you
0: did not watch his incredible role <laughs> in the gothic Victorian melodrama horror show. It's brilliant, he's great in it.
1: Every single person in that TV show is hot. It's a masterpiece of casting. It's so great. And also I like to tell people that my friend Sam, who once worked at the, uh, used to work at the Tape Modern and saw a lot of famous people said that the hottest, famous person she's ever seen and the hottest person she's ever seen in real life was Josh Hartnett. And she had to unfortunately tell him that he couldn't go through a door that was uh, exit only. Ignominious. Afterwards, when she was telling me this story, she was like, why didn't I just let Josh Hartnett go through the door? <laughs> what how would it have caused? This is true pretty privilege. Pretty privilege, exactly. <laughs> He's just living his life with people letting him go through doors. Yeah, yeah. And good on him. My wow. least favourite guy... I feel like I need to uh, express this, is Benny Safdie, who whenever he was on screen, I just thought that's Benny Safdie. I absolutely a lot
0: of people saying that and I am blessed with not knowing who Benny Safdie looks like. So I was just
1: like some guy. (laughs) (laughs) I like a lot of Safdie Brothers films, obviously directed Uncut Gems. Gems. Yeah, I got
0: 15 minutes into Uncut Gems, realized it was about gambling and was like, I can't watch this. I can't watch it (laughs) on about gambling. It's too stressful. (laughs)
1: That's (laughs) fair. My one turn Um, off... (laughs) That's absolutely fair. You know, you got to know yourself. But Benny Safdie and his brother Josh Safdie also kind of cast themselves in some of their earlier films. And Benny Safdie's got a like very particular look, and he does. is also one of those guys who's kind of like New York cool guy. He was also playing the dad recently in the very good adaptation of Are You There God? It's Me Margaret. Which I also watched thinking, that's Benny (laughs) Tafty. Just got one of those faces where if you know who it is, you're like, you're not convincing as another person. Also, he was doing a weird accent. And it felt like he was being Borat or something. (laughs) Like he was being a comedy character within this film where everybody else pretty much is brilliant. So yeah, my least favourite guy. Yeah. What did you think of Killian himself?
0: I thought Killian was very good, but... I feel like a lot of my critiques about that role is just tied up in like the entire structure of the film rather than Mm -hmm. his performance because I mean I think he is wonderful I am a long time Killian viewer because I really liked Mm -hmm. Breakfast on Pluto as a teenager A film which, in retrospect, when you cast a cisgender man as a trans woman, obviously problematic, but it did come out in like 2004 or something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Because he gives a really powerful performance throughout the film, but the whole thing is kind of predicated on a kind of interiority that isn't really present, you know? So the most emotionally intense moments are actually illustrated partially through the kind of effects and stuff in a way that I did Mm -hmm. find really effective. Like the really famous scene is the one where they've just dropped the bomb and he gives this speech to all the people at Los Alamos and they're all viewing it as this victory and are like cheering and he is essentially having a panic attack and Nolan illustrates this very effectively by, you know, having Oppenheimer imagine that he is going through the bomb and it's in this kind of like very loud reverberation that kind of overlaps with... There's a lot of sound design stuff going on there, right? So it's like, I think when people are thinking about which moments did you find the most memorable and powerful, it's not really rooted in Killian Murphy's performance... It's rooted Mm -hmm. in stuff like sound design. Yeah. Which isn't a complaint, if you get what I mean. I realize I'm being very circuitous here, but like, weirdly, even though this is the movie that's probably going to get him an Oscar or at the very least an Oscar nomination, to me, it's not the most interesting Killian Murphy role, which I'm sure he wouldn't be thrilled to hear because like he fucking killed himself to make this movie, you know? It's like all the kind of anecdotes about them making the film is that you know he was sequestering himself away from the rest of the cast because everyone else Uh. had a really fun time because they had really (laughs) short batches of acting and then kind of got to hang out and he was like in every single scene and was doing really (laughs) intensive research and had to learn how to speak dutch and was doing all this sort of exposition and had to have this really powerful screen presence at all times so yeah that's that's my thoughts
1: yeah, I kind of agree with you. It's difficult when somebody is in every single It's not difficult. It's just funny when somebody's in every single scene being really intense, but they are kind of a cipher or like the center of this like black hole in a way where it's like it takes it out a lot on the performer without giving much away to the to the audience, but it's interesting to think of him as the, as the center of it when everybody else is doing really varied work.
0: I saw a really good quote from Christopher Nolan in in, uh, one of his New York Times interviews where he's talking about kind of the research process for the physics where he he spoke with Kip Thorne, who is this very prominent physicist, I believe at MIT or Harvard, somewhere prestigious. And he also like does a lot of consulting work for Blockbusters. So he kind of was the consultant on Interstellar. So obviously Chris could call him up and be like, please tell me what (laughs) to put on the blackboard for Oppie. But uh, so he said, Kip Thorne was able to speak to how Oppie would allow a sort of group discussion to take place and then step in at just the right moment to summarize. Apparently he could do this very quickly. He could summarize something very long and complex that a fellow scientist said and then move the discussion to the next stage. That quality of orchestration was necessary for such a vast project to become a success. And I read this and immediately thought... I can see why Christopher Nolan personally resonates with this, because what he is describing is Christopher Nolan, because that is the (laughs) job of a film director and producer, which is taking control of a massive thing with a ton of moving pieces where there is a lot of kind of high intensity work and very complex technical jobs going on. And that is obviously more true for Christopher Nolan than any other filmmaker currently working probably because... In addition to the fact that he is working on these massive effects driven blockbusters with a really big budget, he is kind of famous for actually doing this in a way that's well organized. So he Mm -hmm. kind of gets stuff in and on time and on budget and like runs things very smoothly and professionally and people aren't stressed out on set very much which is extremely rare partly because like a lot of people who work in the industry are maniacs and partly because (laughs) a lot of the people who are put in charge of big blockbusters don't have the correct experience or they're handing off a bunch of stuff to like the second director of the visual effects department you know so it's like he's reading this and he's like god i'm just obsessed with oppenheimer's work as a project manager
1: (laughs) (laughs) is it a great man biopic and what is the greatest man a project manager (laughs) should we talk a little bit about the film of it all as in the kind of film stock imax because i saw it on 70 mil and i know that you saw it on imax i wanted to see it again i think i will see it again on imax i wanted to see it again before we recorded but i uh, didn't have time obviously he's a big kind of cheerleader for filming on film and the sort of technical sides of filmmaking And I don't know about you, but when I saw it in 70mm, I don't think we mentioned, but the film is filmed kind of half in black and white and half in colour. And especially the black and white parts, the contrast that you were able to get on a 70mm projection is astonishing and is also really in those kind of black and white parts where most of the black and white parts are of the hearings. And in those parts, it just really it really emphasised the prestige 70s Cold War overall, you know. It kind of reminded me a little bit of like, obviously films of the time but like more contemporary films it kind of reminded me of Good Night and Good Luck the oh, yeah. uh-huh. George Clooney film which is also really great and also another part that I, where I could really kind of see the benefits of the 70mm was the atomic test itself where everything just goes bright, bright, bright white and that was pretty mind-blowing what was your kind of IMAX experience like
0: well obviously it was very impressive which is true of pretty much any film you see at IMAX that's not complete dreck I didn't get the <laughs> sort of religious visual experience that I think a lot of people did and I have no idea mm. whether that's because 70 millimeter is more effective or if it's just because I was kind of bouncing off the film a bit in general yeah It was obviously gorgeously shot, as you would expect from Christopher Nolan and Van Hoytema, who Morgan and I discussed in our episode about NOPE last year, which I just think is amazingly shot. He also worked on Interstellar and Dunkirk and Tenet. So he is a kind of long-time Nolan collaborator.
1: Also, he has an absolutely banging name. Yes,
0: van Hoytema. <laughs> it's great. I mean, I liked the the kind of black and white color contrast. It didn't really wow me visually in the way that you describe, but I love a little gimmick like that. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. The, the way that me it's too. sort of marketed is that the majority of the film is in color and is from Oppenheimer's perspective, and then the stuff that's in black and white is most of the sections that are in the kind of 50s where it's these hearings and that's kind of described as the more objective version but obviously there's no such thing as an objective biopic so it's, mm-hmm. it's still a fictionalised biopic but it's showing stuff more from Robert Downey Jr.'s character's perspective, um, who we should talk about because he is like one of the main figures, but he plays Louis Strauss, who is this businessman and kind of philanthropist who funds this scientific research place that Oppenheimer ends up working at after he has developed the bomb and become this huge public figure. But yeah, I mean, clearly a lot of people were really blown away by this on a visual level. I felt that far more with Dunkirk, actually, I think. Mm -hmm. The parts that I that really kind of spoke to me in that ter- in terms of what I guess you describe as visual world building in a more kind of sci-fi movie would be the way that Nolan kind of draws connections between microscopic stuff and metaphysical stuff, if you if yeah. you get what I'm talking about. Because the, yeah. the film basically opens with or very early in the film, they have this stuff to do with like particles, and you get these visual kind of soundscape situations where you're seeing you know, points of light or stars and then it's kind of compared to the way the explosion happens later on. Famously, this film is extremely low on CGI and something Nolan said in an interview with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which I was I was very <laughs> amused to see. This is literally just like the atomic science website. And so he's being interviewed by someone who only ever interviews people about atomic science, I assume. So at the beginning, he, the first question is like, hey, it's surprising you did this. It's not like Batman. And then the rest of the questions are like a lot deeper. But um, something Nolan says here is, the point of the Trinity test being there for that birth of atomic weaponry, you want to be terrified. You want it to be beautiful, but also frightening. And things that are photographed for real they are going to inherently have more weight to them. They're going to have that threat. Computer graphics tends to be a bit safer. He kind of goes on to compare this to, there's like a nuclear bomb scene in one of the Batman movies, but he said it's fine for that to be CGI because it's not meant to be really upsetting and it's physically distant from the action. Whereas the Mm -hmm. point of this is you're meant to be really immersed in the awe-inspiring experience of this nuclear test explosion. Yeah. So it's like when you have something that's like actual physical effects it's more effective and it's like yeah
1: that's true it looks incredible it looks great there was a real physicality to that moment as well i think that really impressed me i like that there was a lot of focus on just the physical effects on the people who were surrounding it because like everybody who was involved in the trinity test was like sat around not watching it but like sort of like trying to awkwardly watch it through, you know, a mirror or, like, leaning behind a kind of mound of earth or something. And there was a lot of, like... He's really good at working with sound design and the kind of silence and bright light in that moment combined with the, like, really loud, deep sounds and the people's reactions really made it really physical and really real in a way that I think was quite smart and provocative if you think about the way that yeah. the Japanese bombing wasn't shown at all yeah. you know you see the the effects on these people who are just sat around watching it and there's like one of them I think it is actually my my hated Benny I was gonna say
0: one of the memes from this movie is like Benny Safdie yeah. wearing
1: sunglasses like watching the explosion <laughs> I thought that the physicality of that the sound of that were very similar intentionally obviously in the kind of scene when he's addressing everybody kind of after the bomb goes off and it's it's interesting that these two moments you know you know what's in the middle of them and that those are just kind of tests or fantasies around this thing that was like very real
0: i mean it's a very good illustration of what i was saying about how his films how nolan's films are not actually chilly and Mm -hmm. sterile at all because all of the conversation around that scene is all about the effects that were used to create the bomb like there's been tons and tons of articles written about how it's like oh it's not cgi it's practical and when you're Mm -hmm. actually watching the film that part lasts for like a minute and there was just like minutes and minutes around that which are all to do with people's emotional reactions and all of these actors giving these really powerful performances of them like freaking out and having this religious experience or being really stressed out because they think the world's gonna end and that sort of thing so Mm -hmm. it is actually performance
1: focused movie. <laughs> There's a really great small performance from the guy who presses the button <laughs> and it's just like two minutes but he really packs a lot in it's like he's got one thing to do and does it really well you know you know you've got the two guys stood next to each other this guy who's like just been tasked to press this button and then the guy who's like orchestrated this whole thing who's Oppenheimer and they're next to each other and it's like it's quite an interesting contrast of of roles in this like huge event shall we talk a bit about the kind of political elements
0: yeah there are so many different kind of arguments and interpretations around this movie I mean the one that came up before the film's release and is still very much a point of discourse is the fact that Nolan chose not to depict any of the fallout in Japan. Mm -hmm. So you don't see the bomb falling in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You don't see what Mm -hmm. happens to people. You also don't see what happened to people who lived near Los Alamos and got like radiation poisoning and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of stupid discussion about that, but there's also been a lot of fruitful discussion and I think it's, one of these situations where like, there's no right answer and a lot of people are going to have different interpretations. Cause like one of my best friends was in Japan like last week and was kind of telling me about how obviously in Japan, this film has not been as well received. And a lot of people are Mm. more of the opinion of like, why isn't this shown the Japanese perspective? But also Mm. it doesn't feel like the film is careless at all. Like Nolan is very explicitly telling this whole story from Oppenheimer's perspective and Oppenheimer doesn't see Japan And he doesn't see what happens to Los Alamos or care necessarily about what happens to people who like got radiation poisoning. He also doesn't care about his kids. Like his kids are in this movie for like two minutes. (laughs) Their parents like explicitly abandon them with a friend and then leave. So you are seeing like it's very kind of self-centered even though it is about him struggling with the moral impact of the crime he's committed on the world, right? And I also think that, you know, there are many Japanese films about the bomb already and people should go and find those. And also, Christopher Nolan is like not the right person to be telling that half of the story because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he is not good at making films about literally anyone who is not a white American or British man. That is like, <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. the entirety of the demographics he's capable of handling. And if you're making a film that is explicitly about Oppenheimer and the people in his immediate vicinity, as soon as you start kind of going outside of that, it ends up potentially feeling really exploitative, I think. And obviously, like, I do have problems with this movie and I have problems with the way Oppenheimer is being portrayed and that sort of thing. There's loads of kind of political and ethical qualms you can have about the film, but I don't think they're solved by showing unnamed Japanese civilians dying horribly. That seems unpleasant and something that would be criticised if it was in the film.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. I think that, as is just the way of discourse, a lot of people are talking about a film that doesn't exist and a film that this isn't, and I don't think that that's helpful. And I think it's also this idea of if you don't show something, you haven't thought about it, and it's not purposeful. I think it's very telling that there's two moments that I think are sort of very affecting and very brief, and I think more affecting because they are very brief. There's one part where Oppenheimer later on is sat in a a conference or something, and they're showing slides with pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and he sort of flinches and looks away he can't look at it and we don't see it we just see him it's a tiny moment but it's very telling and then there's another moment that I think's been picked up on a lot is when they're trying to decide where to drop the bomb one of the guys from the government who's responsible for it rules out Kyoto because he went on honeymoon there and it's like these kind of tiny moments show that it's like a silent presence that whenever it kind of like comes into the narrative, they want to swat it away immediately because you can't think about it. I don't think that a film can possibly handle something this huge and with implications this wide ranging and wide reaching. A single film cannot do that. <laughs> I don't think that this is like a politically perfect film, but I think that I kind of basically agree with everything that you're saying there. I think maybe also there's there's an interesting way that that is rubbing up against this great man thing because... If you think about great in the terms of what it means here, which is that, you know, he was a huge figure. He had a great impact on the world in a kind of morally neutral way, just like he did factually have a great impact. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's a good person. And I think that there's also maybe still a tendency... Of audiences to think that if a film is being made about somebody, then they are they're the a heroes. good protagonist. I mean, this is, yeah, exactly like there's
0: that, but there's also you know? one other thing about the great man biopic situation is that even though this is a protagonist led drama that is about Oppenheimer and called Oppenheimer, I think a major thesis of the film is actually that Oppenheimer didn't make the bomb by himself. You know, mm-hmm. his character arc, even though it is quite frustratingly lacking in like explicit points (laughs) quite a lot of the time it is very much a story about someone who is very clever and is very good at certain things and is also kind of unpleasant on a personal level but also he is constantly flinching away from making any sort of meaningful moral decision like he's never able to do that he's never able to commit morally to saying that the bomb is bad even though he clearly knows it he is never able to commit politically in the way that loads of people around him are solidly invested in communism but he is always sort of chickening out essentially even though it's something that he potentially thinks is true so he's trying to like tread this middle ground that never works but also even though he is the person who you know spearheads the entire like development process at los alamos and obviously is like the mastermind behind this as a physicist none of this happens without the entire infrastructure of the u.s government right yeah they are the ones who are pushing him in certain directions. And then once the bomb has been invented, they are the ones who take over and make it into this much more terrifying killing machine, which like goes on to dominate the next 20 years slash the entire future of political conflict. But um, (laughs) in addition to the film kind of making it clear that it's not just him that's doing this and it's this whole complex also, Christopher Nolan could not be more obvious in his total disrespect for the people who are in charge because it's yeah, not just that yeah, there's a yeah. the moment where it's like the Secretary of Defense is like, oh, we're not bombing Kyoto because it's a beautiful city and I had my honeymoon there. It's like Matt Damon's character is the main kind of military representative in the film. He plays General Groves and he's kind of this like goofy figure, you know. And then during the interrogations in the 50s, you've got all these characters who are unpleasant or disingenuous or just like immoral their politics are completely whacked the whole thing is run by like mad paranoia and then of course the president is portrayed very negatively in a way that largely doesn't happen in american films that aren't satirical comedies and it's like all presidents are terrible because they're the president of the u.s like that's by definition it's like a morally bankrupt concept (laughs) a lot of them were also really stupid and like the entirety of history teaching and like historical dramas are like this sort of armor that protects them from ever being interpreted in a remotely unflattering light you know <laughs> unless it's a president everyone's decided is really terrible but it's like yeah. Gary Oldman rolls up in his fucking corny ass role and is just like <laughs> calling him a pissy for not wanting to drop the bomb and all that stuff. The film is pretty obviously making it clear that like every element of the government structure here is completely terrible. And then obviously Robert Downey Jr.'s character is the kind of linchpin in this whole drama. His return to actual acting after over a decade. (laughs) Obviously, one cannot feel much sympathy for Robert Downey Jr. because he is richer than God. He earned just hundreds of millions of dollars off the Avengers franchise. But like, I did read an interview with him a while ago where he was like, I was genuinely scared that I'd forgotten how to act. And now he's fully (laughs) free of Marvel. He is being quite explicit in that like he did not have such a great time there the past few years because... Obviously he's just like been floating around in a CGI Iron Man suit delivering garbage lines. He did a great job here and it very much is the Salieri role. I realise we keep referencing Amadeus if you've not watched Amadeus. All I as can say is should. just watch it because it fucking rules.
1: <laughs> watch the director's cut. It's like four hours. And it's I think
0: important. I might have done. Yeah, I mean, it obviously, to be clear, bears no resemblance to anything remotely approaching <laughs> Mozart's actual life. But in my opinion, some of the greatest biopics are the ones that aren't attempting to frame themselves as an ed educational journey that's why my favorite biopic is velvet gold uh, i mean that's that's fully effective <laughs> yeah like rocket man ellen john's uh, musical biopic is a fucking masterpiece and my other one would be the martial arts biopic ip man which is just <laughs> it stars donnie yen and it's fucking great but anyway let's talk about robert Downey jr's lewis strauss a character who and this is a spoiler a character who initially kind of shows up as oppenheimer's pal slash mentor slash financial backer and is slowly revealed to be the antagonist of the story in the final act oh my god it was just
1: such juicy. a juicy this...
0: juicy oh
1: going back to my i want christopher nolan to make a cold war thriller i just thought that the ramping up of pressure and of twi- it wasn't even like twists it was just like How the plot was propelled in the last hour was just absolutely stunning. And I was just like, I feel like I am on a roller coaster and this is so good. (laughs) You know, it's a lot of things working in tandem. It's the structure, it's the, the screenwriting, I think, it's the editing. And it's also, I think a lot of it is Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, which I just think is outstanding. And he will get a sporting actor nomination in a film where you could fill five slots of supporting actors really like surprising in a way just I think maybe surprising just because I haven't seen him do anything properly for ages so he's so clearly like trying to be restrained you know
0: and the Mm. thing about him is that he does have like a few very recognizable ticks and there were occasional moments in the film where I'd be like oh here's like this little Robert Downey Jr. tick which reminded Mm -hmm. me that it was him but if I only am occasionally remembering that it's this hugely famous actor who I've only seen play a garbage (laughs) role for 10 years I think that's (laughs) a pretty good job yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. He has enough controlled screen presence that, like, you don't feel like he's overpowering until you get to the final act reveal where you find out that he's been sort of the architect of Oppenheimer's betrayal where he sort of created this situation that led to him losing his security clearance and then being questioned about his communist ties. And there's also a great little role for Alden Ehrenreich. Yes. The other guy who's in the room during all of this. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Really good. Speaking of guys, what did you think of Rami Malek in this? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> silly i know that this. i mean i've never like seen him but... be good at anything because i've never seen it. Yeah. I, like i'm sure he's probably fine in something another thing where it's like whenever he turns up i'm like that's Romy malik and doing like a questionable voice and
0: the thing is that he has a questionable voice he has like a very weird aura
1: I will never forget his Oscars presence when he was like delivering some kind of in-between clips thing. Just like the most intense, frightening presence. I'm not saying this as in I think he's
0: a creepy person, but it's like people have a certain vibe that comes across on screen and he has this sort of like twitchiness and stuff. I don't know. Maybe I'm being unfair, but the atmosphere that he (laughs) he
1: puts off is unfortunate. Totally. I found it not strange casting just like, When he came on doing that moment and he's got like kind of a big moment in the in the hearing where he kind of reads out some important evidence and I was just like, Oh, I don't know about this.
0: (laughs) It's kind of a big actor to be in a role that isn't really a name role, even though there's a lot of big actors in this. I would say that obviously it is absolutely nothing on the Einstein cameo, which is oh shit. Hysterical garbage.
1: absolute the biggest
0: cornball moment is like when there's a few different scenes with einstein but he comes in like fucking dumbledore or something to give some <laughs> wise advice to oppenheimer and the thing is that while i don't know about oppenheimer i do know about einstein so as soon as you show him up as like the stereotypical einstein as this sort of weird <laughs> advice figure i'm like this is not what einstein was
1: like <laughs> um actually i think you're fine As an Einstein, (laughs) I think you'll (laughs) find it was really funny as well because because this film is so long. Like like I kind of mentioned before that somebody can not be in it for an hour and then they'll turn up again and you're like, oh yeah. And Einstein was like, every time was a jump scare because he's he's in it like three times. Looking and so ridiculous, like a cartoon of Einstein. And then at the end, there's like this big moment where it's like, but what was he saying to Einstein in this moment where we didn't see what he said at the beginning? And it's like. Is the big ending going to be about Einstein? This is so ridiculous. It was outrageous. Also, I love that you know a lot about Einstein. Of course you do. I'm not surprised by that. Are there any good Einstein films? I I don't know. I can't imagine there are because the
0: problem is, right, is that you want to make a movie about Einstein and everyone's like, I love Einstein. Everyone's like, he was so smart. He invented all this stuff. He had this fun, jovial personality. And famously, he was anti racist in his old age. And it's like, just wait till you hear about his youth of being a violent misogynist. Oh my God. <laughs> being a terrible husband to his wife, who was one of the few women who got into their physics college. And then he turned her into a housewife and destroyed her spirit. <gasps> oh no. So you could make a great, like, Pablo Lorraine film about Einstein's first marriage. Holy shit. He then left her for I his own that. cousin, his first cousin whoa <laughs> no way which was less dicey in like 1940 but still like
1: phew it's still um, pretty dicey yeah I mean first cousin first <laughs> well that's the story for another episode
0: <laughs> the thing is that there is so much to talk about in this film but we do need to wrap up this episode so it doesn't end up a hundred years long so I think we should maybe talk a little bit about the music which I think is mm-hmm. one
1: of your areas of expertise. I thought the music was great. I just always think that the sound and the score in Nolan's films, he's very good at both, but he's also very good at how the two work together mm-hmm. and how to create tension with both of them simultaneously. Despite being really corny in a lot of ways, I don't think that his scores are very corny, yeah, which is quite interesting because it's, that's usually the first thing to go corny.
0: <laughs> Just easy to give the to credit, the music is by Ludwig Göransson, who is one of the great young Hollywood composers at the moment. He has collaborated with Ryan Coogler on several films, including Black Panther and Creed, and he also did the music for several of the bad Star Wars TV shows, but obviously the, the theme songs are very good. So he is he is great. I think he's fantastic. I would actually go a step further in terms of what you said about how great music is kind of a crucial part of Nolan's films. I would say in this film, this film would be absolutely unwatchable if not for the music <laughs> because the main reason why a lot of those men talking in room scenes are tense is because they are fucking blasting deafening thriller music all yeah, the way yeah, through yeah, those yeah. conversations yeah. so it's like yeah. you take out that one keystone at the top of the archway and all the other stones are just going to collapse without the score <laughs> so obviously Oscars are nonsense but like, he needs the Oscar for this because Oppenheimer is nothing without the music <laughs>
1: One of my friends described it as a three-hour-long trailer.
0: It's loud. It's loud.
1: Despite being a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, I don't like Magnolia for that reason, because I think it is a three-hour-long trailer, because it's got just really loud music going through it. But I think because it's such a crucial part of these thriller elements, and in the rest of it there is enough of kind of light and shade, and enough use of silence in the same way that there's use of kind of bright light, I think that it works because of that. Maybe if it was all the way through, it would be a bit much, but it kind of shifts the tone correctly.
0: Yeah, I mean, the film would collapse without the music, but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie.
1: It just means that
0: Nolan has crafted a complete work. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. I think so often film music can be decorative in a way that means that it doesn't need to be there at all. You know, like your enemy Hans Zimmer (laughs) and his Dune score there's nothing added there. So it's like nice to see a filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, there's lots I mean, Especially examples, in sort but... of
0: dramas where it's, you know, a lot of it is like incidental music. And in this, it's yeah. just, it exists to bring all of the emotional cues to the surface and then just like stab yep. them repeatedly. And I can see why some people yeah. would be like, no, thanks. <laughs> but it's a bold move for what is in other ways a Benedict Cumberbatch biopic.
1: So yeah. <laughs> I think that that sums up your your view of this film quite well i get why people wouldn't like it but i love it is my general feel and on that note i think that's everything (laughs) i
0: don't think think we need to relitigate barbenheimer no we we know everyone knows this film is very commercially successful it's partially thanks to barbie and vice versa congrats to we're all happy
1: about hollywood accountants
0: so for our next episode together you have made a very cool suggestion, which is the film <laughs> Passages, which is one of the most kind of acclaimed and hyped indie films of the year. You've seen it already. I've not seen it because it's not out yet, but you saw like an advanced screening. It is a French queer romance starring the iconic Franz Rogowski, the <gasps> iconic Ben Wishaw, and the <gasps> already acclaimed but currently unknown Adele Exarchopoulos. And um, it is a sort of like a bisexual love triangle kind of situation. It's very sexy. And I look forward to seeing it because we will be discussing that
1: in depth. Passages. Everybody in it is hot and it is fucking amazing. And the costumes are so good. We're going to talk so much about the costumes and I cannot wait. I look forward because
0: I've already seen some pictures and I'm like, the outfits that Franz Rogowski is wearing are like, oh my God, I'm ready. I'm ready to perish
1: right i'm re-watching it because i'm writing something about it and i've obviously you can't screenshot the screener because it's like illegal illegal but i've taken a lot of photos on my phone of just the outfits just to just to look at and enjoy for myself if mubi are listening to this then i haven't done
0: <laughs> the important thing is they're not going to be distributed if they existed which they don't Yes. And yeah, if, if any listeners are remembering from a few weeks ago when we said we were doing an episode about Shanghai Express from the 30s, we are. We have recorded it. It just got delayed because we had Oppenheimer and new releases and stuff. <laughs> this is like Stefan and I recorded an episode about The Exorcist like weeks and weeks ago. And in the interim, the director of The Exorcist has died. So I'm going to have to probably record a new intro oh, to be yeah. like, just FYI, we're talking about this man in <laughs> facetious tones as if he's still around. But um, respectfully, oh. William Friedkin was a maniac. <laughs> but yeah, everyone go watch passages if you're able to do that. And um, as for Patreon, just a reminder, go check to make sure you're still subscribed. If you're not subscribed, consider throwing a couple of dollars slash pounds our way to continue funding the show and getting access to an archive of patreon-only episodes and audio comedy tracks for movies like the lord of the rings trilogy and the star wars prequel trilogy and titanic morgan and i will soon or have already i'm not sure on the timing here recorded a new q a episode where like patreon people can ask us any questions and we will answer them patreon.com slash we are available on twitter and tumblr and instagram at Overinvested podcast and you can find all the show notes and links for this episode on overinvestedpodcast.com. Also with me, Tumblr, Hello Taylor, Letterboxd, Hello Taylor, where I log all my reviews, and Gavia at Blue Sky. How about you, Claire?
1: um i'm on twitter still at miss claire biddles. i am on letterboxd at just claire biddles and nobody will ever find out what my tumblr is <laughs> it's a secret <laughs> yeah my tumblr
0: is like i'm not like writing there very much but i just like plop on whatever so like who knows what you'll find yeah. there if you like movies just Beautiful. follow me on letterboxd <laughs> and also i keep forgetting to say this because this is something morgan always used to put at the end of episodes but like please rate and review us on uh apple podcasts yes Throw a five-star review our way, hopefully. Tell people how much you love us um, or indeed share the podcast with your pals because we love to have new listeners. But on that note, thanks for listening and uh, we will see you soon.